I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. 1797, William Goodwin, philosopher, novelist, and of course husband to Mary Wollstonecraft and father to Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame, published his reflections on history and historical fiction. And the first line of this essay is a line that historians in particular just love to repeat. He wrote, the study of history may well be ranked among those pursuits which are most worthy to be chosen by a rational being. And he launched, if you like, this bitter attack um, against critics who believed that certain kinds of history writing, histories of personal events, and of course, the historical novel, were, in his words, a symptom of effeminacy that disturb by exciting the torbid tranquility of the soul. On the contrary, he exclaimed, although it may be argued that the history which comes nearest to truth is the mere chronicle of facts, places, and dates, but this, he went on, was in reality no history. He that knows only what day the Bastille was taken knows nothing. He professes the mere skeleton of history, the muscles, the articulations, everything in which the life emphatically resides is absent. And instead, he has this resounding call for the historical romance as the noblest and most excellent species of history. Now, alas for historians and writers of historical fiction, um, that was not a universal uh, assessment. Sir Leslie Stephen, author and critic and embedded within a feminist environment as distinguished as that of Goodwin, um, he was father, of course, to Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell, um, once famously dismissed the historical novel as pure cram or pure fiction. The worst historical fiction weighed down by facts and stifled by the need to ensure that characters conform to the dictates of Mathus, Marx or modernism, postmodernism, or equally dreadful, it wallows in sentimentality, lauding either a nostalgic world of community, stability and certainty, or indeed does exactly the opposite with sort of blood and guts or boobs in the case of the bursting bodice historical romances spilling over everywhere. Now, the two authors we're going to be hearing um, from today allow us, I think, to spurn Stevens for the much more admirable Goodwin. 
in Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel invites us into the bloody arrangements of the Tudor court. Her novel is a brilliantly vivid story about Thomas Cromwell, and it's also, I think, a, a very important revisionist repose to Robert Bolt's highly um, unflattering 1960s play, A Man for All Seasons. Sacred Hearts, Sarah Denan, encourages us readers to meditate on the power of religion and friendship. Set in 1570, at a time when half of all women in Italy um, lived out their youths and old age in convents, Sacred Heart captivates readers with the story of 16-year-old Serafina, a reluctant bride of Christ. But when I was thinking about what we were going to be talking um, about tonight, the main question, I think, is, well, what actually is historical fiction? Um, and I wonder, in fact, whether either of these authors really want to be seen as um, writers of historical fiction. Certainly, both Sarah and Hilary did a vast amount of historical research in order to write their novels. But in a sense, isn't all fiction historical in some way? Or do we want to set a time frame, sort of arbitrary time frame? I mean, do you have to be writing about a period 50 years earlier, or maybe a, a hundred years earlier? Um, then there, there's another problem, which is in fact precisely the opposite of that one, and that is that perhaps no novels are historical. Um, in other words, we all belong to our time. There's nothing whatsoever we can do to escape from it. Whatever writers uh, do will be contemporary, even if we set that into the past. So indisputably, I think this term historical fiction is clumsy and, and may even be counterproductive. Um, there's another reason I'm saying this, and that is that, of course, there are a multitude of ways to do historical uh, fiction. Some uh, writers focus on real historical figures. Pat Barker, of course, took on the neurologist William, uh, William Rivers and the poet uh, Sassoon. Uh, Hilary, of course, has Thomas Cromwell in Wolf Hall. In contrast, Sarah Waters, The Little Stranger, which also has just recently come out, is a ghost story set in post-war Warwickshire with imaginary characters. And of course, Sarah's uh, novel is also set in a very, very uh, um, specific geographical location, but of course, her characters emerge newly born from her imagination. Some historical novels seem to be more keen to sort of ape, if you like, historical um, um, ways of doing things um, than others. So, for example, Adam Thorpe's um, Hod, which also came out very recently, a story about the real Robin Hood, even has footnotes, um, copious footnotes, in which the uh, narrator laboriously and I actually think rather, rather tediously, provides commentary, translation, and interpretation. And yet again, other historical writers even provide bibliographies. Um, most obviously, Sarah does this, but also Pat Barker and Regeneration. What is certain, however, is that good historical, fi good fiction set in distance times must allow its readers to sort of create a feeling, if you like, for the past. And this involves engaging in rather delicate negotiations with the then and the now, bridged, bridging, if you like, these distances without flattening our radical differences. If the story is too embedded in the period, it risks an anarchic tone and may even be incomprehensible to readers. If it is too little embedded in the times, readers tend to be distracted, if you like, sort of playing the game of spot the anachronism. 
There's no question, however, that the relationship between history and historical fiction is a jealous one. Historians often claim that readers of historical novels may in fact fail to distinguish between fact and fiction in the novel. In a wonderful essay entitled On the Study of History, 1741, David Hume railed against readers of historical novels and, believing those readers to be women, urged them to read proper history and thus be cured of their erotic obsessions. However, more typically, of course, ever since classical Greece, there's been a lively conversation and interchange between fiction and history. And fiction in particular has been an important um, stimulus for the historical imagination. It was novelists, by and large, who drew historians' attention to the, the forgotten peoples of the past, women, children, the shell-shocked, all of whom, of course, now take a central role in history. Both acts of creation, historical and fiction, um, are of course very popular today and some commentators believe, and I think wrongly, that this represents a sort of despondent turning away from the present into a nostalgic past, a movement, if you like, that's racked with guilt and um, demands for atonement. I think, however, though, this is a rather patronizing um, uh, rather patronizing to um, readers of both history and historical fiction. Rather, I believe both kinds of past-focused writing represents a yearning for personal and societal transformation, for new ways, indeed, of doing the future. In the words of Margaret Atwood, by taking a long, hard look backwards, we place ourselves. The past belongs to us because we are the ones who need it. Um, we're now going to hear from two of the, you know, the most eminent uh, writers of uh, the past um, today. Um, we're, the way we're going to do this, I think, is we're going to start with Hilary um, Mantel and then Sarah Dunan. Then we're going to open up for you to ask questions, provide your own point of view, and then we'll break for signings and, and buying of the books. But if I can just first introduce the two people very quickly here. Hilary um, studied law, in fact, at the LSE and Sheffield University. Nine novels, including A Place of Greater Safety, set in Paris during the Revolution, and the absolutely astounding book, which I just read last week, The Giant O'Brien, uh, set in London, um, 17, uh, 1780s, a fantastic undermining of the, the sort of gentility of the Enlightenment and its sciences. Um, her new book, however, moves back in time to the Tudor era, Wolf Hall, tracing the early career of Thomas Crom Cromwell. And I believe it's going to be followed by a second novel to conclude Cromwell's story. Sarah um, will speak after, after Hillary, research fellow, Berkbeck Institute for the Humanities, writer, broadcaster, critic, 11 novels, screenplays, books of essays she's edited, worked of course for many years in the BBC, radio and in television. Her recent novels, The Birth of Venus, set in Florence, uh, 1490s and in the company of the courtesan, uh, Venice 1550s, I really recommend that, that book, had been of course international bestsellers and the final volume of this Renaissance trilogy, Sacred Hearts, will uh, in fact is out today I believe. Um, but first can we, Hilary, would you like to start? Well thank you Joanne. Um, as 
Um, as Joanne said, Wolf Hall's a novel about Thomas Cromwell, who was, for almost a decade, Henry VIII's chief minister and fixer. Um, Wolf Hall takes him through his early career. It takes him to um, 1534, at which point he was the King's secretary and a little under 50 years old. Now, Cromwell was from a very humble background. This really is the first thing to know about him. His father, he was born in Putney, and his father was a brewer and blacksmith. He got his start. Well, his, his story was a very complicated and international one. He seems to have first gone abroad at the age of 15, running away from his violent and drunken father, and for a bit of light relief, joined the French army. Um, he was a mercenary in Italy. He somehow got himself into the North Italian banking houses, and there, from there, via Antwerp and the wool trade, back to London, a career in the law, and then he was taken on by Cardinal Wolsey, uh, with whom he had not only a, an, inf uh, an important working relationship, but he also had a close friendship with Wolsey. In Henry's service, he rose to be Earl of Essex before Henry executed him. That is for my next book. Um, <laughs> I feel, you see, that speaking here, that I'm among friends, so I feel I can admit to my doubts and fears. All, all summer, readers have been asking me, do you stick to the facts? And, and when I say, well, the facts are problematical, I'm not sure, do they think I'm being evasive? Do they think I'm being postmodern? I don't know. Um, but I think the truth is that evidence for this era is often dubious or scant. And the age is so much mythologized that many of the so-called facts are just handed down the generations. Um, we take them to be true because we've heard them so often. But when you drag them out into the light of day, it all dissolves. And this is nowhere more true than with my central character, Cromwell. Cromwell was something of a hero to the Elizabethans. And there's an incredibly bad play, I might tell you more about it later, um, called The Tragical Life of Thomas Cromwell or something like that. It, it's one of the worst plays you've ever read and shows signs of being put together by many hands one of whom is probably not William Shakespeare. And um, it's, um, it, it's highly muddled, but the, but the basic thing is it's Cromwell's European adventures. And he's sent off by the playwright abroad at a very early age, and he's, um, he's fitted out with a comic manservant, and they rather like Blackadder and Baldwick. And, um, this element of Cromwell as a trickster figure is something I've tried to preserve from the Elizabethan tradition. 
two-hour day, missing out a lot of what's come in between, which was has been Rankill, Will and Prejudice. Uh, after the Elizabethans, Cromwell's star fell, and it didn't really rise again until the historian G.R. Elton was at work. Um, Elton working in the 60s and 70s was Cromwell's great champion. Elton trained many of the present generation of Tudor historians and like good sons they have to slay their father. So Elton went out of favour and Cromwell went out of favour with him. Uh, so one of my objects is to, to make people take a fresh look. It is a revisionist project but trying to revise opinions not only from Robert Bolt's play, which of course is enormously influential, but also serious historians. Cromwell, his private life is so concealed that there has never been a good biography of him, and I don't think it's possible to write one. And my difficulty, and I find it an excruciating difficulty, is that I am really unwilling to make things up. So when a reader asks me if I've got any evidence for a proposition, if in this instance I have to reply, no, I just made it up, I feel really guilty, I feel impelled to apologise. So you see, I'm not a writer at peace with myself these days. Uh, for most of my inventions in this book, though not all, I can point to something, just a phrase in a letter, just a coincidence of dates that has started my mind moving in a certain direction. And of course I'm allowed by convention more exploratory license than a biographer is. And I have to trust that my reader to know that what I'm offering is true in the way that a painting is true. It is a certain framing of events, and another framing is possible. Other viewpoints are possible, and other versions are latent in my version. Now, forgive me if what I'm going to say next is so simple that it may not need spelling out. I've had to spell it out to myself. I've tried to work, I've been trying to work out what it is that a novelist like me does turning to historical fiction. What I don't do is original research in the archives. That may make me different from Sarah. We'll, we'll hear from her on that point. Most of my work is among the documents, among the archives, but other people have been there before me. Originality is not necessary in that way. Perhaps it's more necessary in retrieving characters and creating a cultural context in which they can operate. That is a great deal of my work. What I do is very like a historian or biographer in that I possess myself of the facts as best I can I scrutinise them. I ask myself, who is telling me this and why would they want me to believe it? I scrutinise the facts for bias, for tainted sources, for unreliable sources. And then 
I try to iron out the contradictions. And if it is impossible to reconcile myself, to reconcile the facts as they are given in different places, I ask myself why and whether the contradiction is an artefact of what has been erased from history or whether the contradiction means something. But having done that, I then go through a further process, which is what belongs to the novelist, of feeling my way through these facts. And I think that I am a novelist and not a biographer or historian, because unless I have worked something through imaginatively, I cannot be convinced of it, and I cannot with conviction proffer it to readers so I'm trying to keep putting myself in the shoes of other people, replaying events from their angle, speculating on the basis of the best information I can get, and I hope possessed of most of the facts, but not claiming to be impartial. You might think of this process of reimagining as a kind of delicate process, but actually, with a project like Wolf Hall and the following book, it's more like using imagination on an industrial scale. I, I think of Tudor kitchens. The work was incredibly heavy, uh, hauling around the slaughtered carcasses and turning out meaty sustenance by the hundred weight every day for hundreds of people, twice a day, 10 o'clock dinner and five o'clock supper. But those same kitchens where the, the utensils look like weapons of war would also contain a little cobbled room in which someone would be producing delicate fantasies for the end of the meal made of sugar and marzipan. Cardinal Wolsey once had an edible chess game constructed. It was to impress some visiting French envoys and he wanted them to be able to take it home with him. So it, with them, so it had to be lasting and tough enough uh, to go on a cross-channel voyage, but still sweet and consumable and alluring when it got to the other side. And when I was writing Wolf Hall, I thought an awful lot about that chess game. <laughs> I'm just going to read you a little now. Um, one or two things to tell you. Um, it's 1528. Thomas More is the King's secretary. Wolsey is still in power, he is Lord Chancellor. Thomas Cromwell is a man in Wolsey's employ and he has noted evangelical sympathies. He is known for this, so he is very discreet about it, which of course puts him in the opposite camp to Thomas More. Um, William Tyndale, the evangelical and Bible translator uh, has fled abroad at this point to, to avoid the authorities and principally Thomas More. And 
two questions that you might want to ask at the end, so I'll clear them up now. Um, the dissolution of the monasteries started under Wolsey. It wasn't introduced by Henry at the Reformation. It was started off by Wolsey. It was nothing to do with charging into monasteries and knocking the hell out of the monks. It was an intricate legal process that took months and sometimes years, and Cromwell was an expert at it, which is why he got the job later on when he dissolved the monasteries for Henry. So that's one question. The other one, you'll say, did they have the Frankfurt Book Fair in those days? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so, um, spring 1528, Thomas More, ambling along, genial, shabby. Just the man, he says. Thomas, Thomas Cromwell. Just the man I want to see. Can you hear me at the back, by the way? I, I don't know if I'm on the mic. And Thomas More doesn't shout, you see. <laughs> He's genial, always genial. His shirt collar is grubby. Are you bound for Frankfurt this year, Master Cromwell? No, I thought the Cardinal might send you to the fair to get among the heretic booksellers. He's spending a deal of money buying up their writings, but the tide of filth never abates. More, in his pamphlets against Luther, calls the German shit. He says that Luther's mouth is like the world's anus. You would not think that such words would proceed from Thomas More, but they do. No one has rendered the Latin tongue more obscene. It's not really my business, Cromwell says. Heretics' books. Heretics abroad are dealt with abroad, the church being universal. Oh, but once these Bible men get over to Antwerp, you know, what a town it is. No bishop, no university, no proper seat of learning. No proper authorities to stop the proliferation of so-called translations. Translations of scripture which, in my opinion, are malicious and willfully misleading. But you know that, Cromwell, of course, you spent some years there. And now Tyndale's been sighted in Hamburg, they say. You'd know him, wouldn't you, if you saw him? So would the Bishop of London, Cromwell says. And you yourself, perhaps. True, more considers it. He chews his lip. And you say to me, well, it's not work for a lawyer, running after false translations. But I hope to get the means to proceed against the brothers for sedition, do you see? The brothers, he says, his little joke. He drips with disdain. If there is a crime against the state, our treaties come into play, and I can have them extradited to answer for themselves in a straighter jurisdiction. Cromwell says, if you found sedition in Tyndale's writings, ah, Master Cromwell, more rubs his hands together. I relish you, I do indeed. Now I feel as a nutmeg must do when it's grated. A lesser man 
a lesser lawyer, I would say, would t- tell me, I have read Tyndale's work and I find no fault there. But Cromwell won't be tripped. He casts it back. He asks me rather, have you read Tyndale? And I admit it. I've studied the man. I've picked apart his so-called translations and I've done it letter by letter. I read him, of course I do, under license from my bishop. It says in Ecclesiasticus, Cromwell says, that he that toucheth pitch shall be defiled, unless his name's Thomas More. Well, now I knew you were a Bible reader, most apt. But if a priest hears a confession and the matter be wanton, does that make the priest a wanton fellow himself? By way of diversion, Moore takes his hat off and absently folds it up in his hands. He creases it in two. His tired, bright eyes glance around as if he might be confuted from all sides. And I believe, he says, the Cardinal of York has licensed his young divines at Cardinal College to read the sectary's pamphlets. Perhaps he includes you in his dispensations, does he? It would be strange for him to include his lawyer, but then it's strange work for lawyers altogether. We've come round in a circle, Cromwell says. More beams at him. Well, after all, it's spring. We shall soon be dancing around the Maypole. Got weather for a sea voyage. You could take the chance to do some wool trade business. Unless it's just men you're fleecing these days. And if the Cardinal asked you to go to Frankfurt, I suppose you'd go. Now, if he wants some little monastery knocked down, when he thinks it has good endowments, when he thinks the monks are old, Lord bless them, and a little wandering in their wits, when he thinks the barns are full and the ponds well stocked with fish, the cattle fat, the abbot old and lean, off you go, Thomas Cromwell, you and your little apprentices, north, south, east or west. If another man were saying this, he'd be trying to start a fight. When Thomas More says it, it leads to an invitation to dinner. Come out, Chelsea, he says. The talk is excellent and we shall like you to add to it. Our food is simple but good. Tyndale says a boy washing dishes in the kitchen is as pleasing in the eye of God as a preacher in the pulpit or the apostle on the Galilee shore. Perhaps, Cromwell thinks, I won't mention Tyndale's opinion. Thomas Moore pats his arm. Have you no plans to marry again, Thomas? No, perhaps wise. My father always says, choosing a wife is like putting your hand into a bag full of writhing creatures with one eel to six snakes. What are the chances you'll pull out the eel? Your father has married what, he says, three times? Four. More smiles. The smile is real. It crinkles the corners of his eyes. Your beadsman, Thomas, he says, as he ambles away. When Moore's first wife died, 
The successor was in the house before the corpse was culled. Hilary and I were on a platform a couple of weeks ago at Birkbeck and uh, it was very interesting the areas in which we completely agreed in the methods we had and areas where we didn't and I hope that's one of the things that will come up tonight because it will be lovely to have some debate about this extraordinary rich form called historical fiction. Um, the obvious difference between Hilary and I of course is that Hilary is writing about recognisable well-known historical figures that are documented and part of the grand narrative of British history. Um, I, in contrast, am choosing to write about people who did not exist. And I'm choosing to do that because what I'm trying to look for is, through the research that I do, the creation of composite characters that show you the complexity of the society they're living in, but they are the kinds of people who would never have made it to the history books. So my characters are composites drawn out of all the research I do as a way of trying to spin a moment in history so you can look at the issues and pressures that existed there as they might have impacted on ordinary people. Um, in terms of asking the question and answering it, and maybe you'll give us answers later, as to why historical fiction is so attractive and so popular, I'd like to posit a completely contradictory two answers to you to see how much they register with you. Um, the first is that while the past is clearly, to quote L.P. Hartley, a foreign country, time being the most kind of mysterious of all dimensions, there is an underlying feeling that there are things within humanity, within the human condition, that whatever time or place you place a story in, remain the same. There is something about the condition of being human that means that there will be universals that we can draw on as writers. That, of course, goes down to quite central versions of emotions like hate or greed or love or terror or revenge or fear or whatever. Um, to quote Shylock, prick us, do we not bleed? However different we may seem, we're always the same. And so part of the attraction of reading about people set in a deep and distant past is you can identify with them in some shape or form, whether they Cleopatra or Gladstone or Henry VIII or Anne Boleyn or a monk in a German monastery or a courtesan in Venice. There are certain things that she or he will feel that you can relate to. The second version is the complete opposite of that. It is the fact that history is profoundly different from the present. That although we may all be born the same, the tabula rasa version of us, which is we are in the making of us rather than the bornness, shows that the moment in history in which we are born, the political system in which we are brought up, the religious system, the belief system, the value system, the culture around us, the technology, everything that forms us defines how we think and maybe even to a large extent how we behave and feel. So the argument of that is you sitting here today are forged as much by the modern moment in which we live are you, as you are forged by universal conditions. And so reading about the past is actually an exercise in understanding profound difference, not just exoticism of a different climate, a different culture, different artwork, different costumes, different food, but a profound version of the fact that you did not think and feel the same. Now, I can't actually answer this question 
as to why historical fiction is so successful. Is it one or both of those? And maybe in some ways it's both at the same time, but it does slightly describe my own journey towards writing it, because when I was young, I was very, very addicted and obsessed by historical fiction. It was entirely the most shameful and wrong kind of historical fiction. I fear to bring it up in such an erudite audience, but it was the equivalent of the bodice ripper. In my defense, the early 1960s were a very dull, gray, boring time in Britain, and the past was everything that my life wasn't. It was exotic, romantic, exciting, amoral, indecent, and I adored it. Um, I adored it so much that I became obsessed with history and ended up reading a history degree for three years at Cambridge where the romance was beaten out of me. And what I came out of was realizing that my easy identification with people was actually a mirage and that the history that I was being taught was about profound complexity. It was about that multi-layering of economics, religion, belief, culture, whatever. And as a result, when I left, it never occurred to me that I would ever be able to write a novel set in history because it was too bloody difficult. It was too complex to get it right. And so for the first 15 years of my writing career, I ignored history altogether. I worked, as you've heard, as a journalist, and I worked writing thrillers. Interestingly, I worked in another genre, which it's very easy to be rude about, except when you do it really well, in which case you do something which is both popular and, I think, some way serious. And then 10 years ago, I found myself at a moment in my writing career where I was basically starting to break the rules of thrillers so much because thrillers were starting to annoy me that I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And I found myself that summer in the city of Florence. It's a city I knew reasonably well, but not brilliantly. And over the weeks I spent there, I started to begin to understand by reading, and then in a sense by losing my maps and getting lost, that if you could get underneath the detritus of the terrible overconsumption of tourism, there was something really quite remarkable that had happened in that city 500 years ago. It had been the cauldron of a cultural revolution the like of which I do not think, with the possible exception of the Enlightenment, Europe has seen since. And I became obsessed by an idea as to whether or not it would be possible to write a novel which gave you the sense that the Renaissance was happening around you as the shock of the new, that you were experiencing it as a modern challenge to your thinking rather than a page in the history books. Now, in order to do this, um, I had to do two things. First of all, I had to go to research, and secondly, I had to get a story. And the first thing that happened to me when I had this idea was my two daughters came to stay with me in Florence, and they had been with their dad on holiday. And they were, at the time, 13 and 10. And they arrived, and I thought, oh, my God, you lucky little things. I know everything there is to know about the Florentine Renaissance, and within three days, you're going to know it too. Um, and I took them out the first day on the streets, and I said to them, well, we're, today we're going to visit churches and museums and art galleries, and you're going to have an understanding of the revolution that took place here 500 years ago. And my 13-year-old, who was like attitude on a stick, turned to me and said... I think you should know, Mum, that at this point in my life, I don't do culture, I just do shopping. <laughs> and the 10-year-old, whose raison d'etre was not to be the 13-year-old, said, that sounds fantastic, Mum, I'll go with you. <laughs> and as I was walking through the city with these two 
bolshy, obstreperous, smart, modern young women on either side of me, I began to realize that there was something missing from the history that I was telling them. And it was women. I was actually talking about a moment of cultural revolution where every name I was coming up with, be it a political thinker, an artist, a writer, a religious thinker, a member of government, whatever, was a man. And I began to ask myself an incredibly simple but quite profound question, which I hadn't realized that actually a historian 30 years ago had asked in a paper, but it was, so did women have a renaissance? I mean, where were they during this moment of cultural revolution? And it was in that moment that I realized that the idea for the birth of Venus would have to be a study of a young woman with the ability to draw and the hunger to paint at a moment of artistic revolution, and how would she ever get her hands on a wall? And that was the idea for the birth of Venus. Now to do that, I went back to history. I hadn't been in a history library for 25 years. I hadn't handed in an essay for 25 years. And the first thing I realized, though, is that in the time I'd been away, a historical revolution had taken place which is that the history that was being written by two, now two generations of young historians was deliberately in some way trying to challenge the grand tradition. Now, there's two ways of challenging it. One, by exactly the revisionism that Hillary is doing in Wolf Hall, different versions of the same moment. And the other is they were ignoring it altogether. They were actually saying, as a result of a mix of Marxism, feminism, gender studies in general, a whole series of kind of quite subversive disciplines, I don't care about that. What was it like underneath? Ground up history, history from below as it became known. And it involved generations of scholars going into the archives at a very different level going into parish archives, going into state archives, going into church records, and panning for gold amid a lot of rubbish in order to try and find out what was happening in real people's lives. Now, that cultural conversation about the grand narrative and history underneath had been going on. I knew it as a, as a journalist. But what I hadn't realized was what it gave the possibilities to a fiction writer. Because, of course, as they pan for gold, nuggets got thrown up, individual stories or individual observations about the lives of how people lived 500 years ago, which for the novelist is gold dust. And so by the end of my research, I actually didn't need to find somebody well-known in history to write about because the composite character I could construct with all of these figures operating them of culture and art and religious thinking did it for me. I realized after the birth of Venus that the next place I had to go, because it was a very obvious place for women, was the sex trade. Um, so I wrote a novel about courtesans set in Venice. And I always knew when ending that book where the third novel would be because there was only one other place to go if you were a woman, and that was the convent. And it is a truly shocking fact that it's really worth emphasizing here that by the end of the 16th century, the level of dowry inflation throughout Europe, but particularly in northern Italy, was so rampant that it was virtually impossible for a semi-rich and even aristocratic family to marry more than one or two of their daughters off to somebody who was a good husband. They would simply not have had the money. 
At the same time, because of the belief system and the religious system, exactly those exotic things we're talking about, it was absolutely impossible for a young woman not to be married. When menstruation happened, she had become, by definition, within this Catholic and even Protestant system, an object of potential temptation to men because she was potentially sexually active. So she had to be owned by somebody and married to somebody. So in lieu of being married to a husband, she was married to Christ. And that is an extraordinary idea. The fact is that of all the women in this room, 50% of you would have been in convents. Now, it goes without saying that all of the women in this room, and the men too at this time, would not have had a problem in terms of believing in God, or if they did, they did not write about it. Believe me, I have scoured. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Looking for statements of atheism, and it is virtually impossible to find at this time. But it certainly goes without saying that of your 50% of you, many of you would not have had a vocation. And so suddenly, the convents become incredibly interesting places. They become half horror story, and they become half story of wonder. And as a result, and you'll find it in the bibliography, which is 50 or 60 pages long, of reading the work that historians have done by going into convent chronicles, by getting these nuggets, what you understand is two things. That for some women, it was dreadful. Because if you think about it, the likelihood is if you're going to be picked to go into the convent, not the marriage, there'll be something wrong with you, right? There'll be a birth defect. There'll be an attack of smallpox. You'll be a little slow. You might be too damn smart. You might be rebellious. There will be good reasons why you're the one not chosen. You might be just unlucky in the fourth daughter and they run out of money. But the other thing about that, of course, is that it sounds terrible until you put yourself in the alternative during the period. And I'm now going to say something so obvious, but so important, which I think about a lot when I'm writing, which is when you are writing in the past, the future does not exist. So when a 21st century woman enters a convent in 1570, there is no knowledge of what women can and will become as the future gradually unfolds challenges to patriarchy and feminism. And the alternative of being your or my age in 1570, or a 15-year-old's age, is that you would be married, 
to a man you almost certainly did not love, you might grow to be fond of. You would then become the equivalent of a breeding cow because, of course, there was no contraception. You would almost certainly give birth to 12, maybe 15 children, some of whom you would watch die in infancy if you yourself hadn't already died in childbirth. And in the middle of this, there would be precious little time for you to explore any creativity of your own. Why is there no female Beethoven? Why is there no female Michelangelo? It's two very simple words, birth control. At one level, it is that simple and profound. Whereas, you go into a convent, and yes, there'll be some brutal things about it. Yes, there'll be eight hours of offices a day. Yes, you will not be able to have sexual relationships with men. Although, let me tell you, I found some very interesting research, and that's not completely true. But you would have some space. And what you discover by reading all this new history is you discover women arranging and composing music. You discover women with fabulous voices becoming really quite famous as part of the choir of angels. You discover women copying and illustrating manuscripts, sometimes writing spiritual advice to their own bishops, even to the Pope, and running their own dispensaries and herb gardens, i.e. getting the nearest they could to being a medical practitioner that they wouldn't have done on the outside world. So that is the world that is shown inside Sacred Hearts, and it begins, as Joanna has said, with a young woman coming in and at 15, the, the level of hormonal rage there would have been in this convent is just fascinating. Any of you with teenage daughters can imagine this one. She's not going to stay. So she flings a rock into the placid surface of this convent and determines that she will go or she will bring it down. And she is mentored by the dispensary sister whose job it is to try and make her settle. Um, I'm, I'm going to read an extract now, but I'm going to read an extract which... Um, talks about something which is a huge subject in itself, and we're only going to be in touch on it now, which is the relationship between spirituality and sexuality. Um, a journalist came to interview me on this book from a Scottish newspaper recently, and when he said, what do all the books have in common? And I said, well, they're all about women during the Renaissance. He said, yes, but actually I think they're all about religion and sexuality. And I realized when he said it that that was true. And if there's also one thing that Hillary and I do share, apart from the fact that we were once both Catholics, I think, mm -hmm. is the fact that we're both very interested in religion mm -hmm. and the way that it impacts on the mind and then defines how you think and behave at certain key political moments. So here are these women in convents. There are no men in the convents except the confessors, and the confessors are very shadowy figures. But there is one figure of a man who uh, actually is of extraordinary importance all through their lives. We live in a world saturated with images now. Convents are places where there are very few images indeed. This is about, from a chapter written about Zwana, whose father was a medical professor in Ferrara, so she learned at his knee, and when he died, there was no dowry, and she came into the convent with some of his books, but not enough to help her do her work as a doctor. Zwana, like every one of her sisters, spends each and every day in the presence of the most perfect male body, that of God himself made flesh. And in this, although it would no doubt shock those in church hierarchy to hear it, the convent has been for Zwana its own medical school, because his body is everywhere, and in each and every stage of life and death, 
from the rosy plumpness of the holy baby reaching arms outstretched from his mother's lap, through the beauty of a grave young man, broad-shouldered and slim-hipped under gathered robes, to the brutal step-by-step -step destruction of that same perfect body in its most exquisite state of manhood. It is its destruction, though, that makes the greatest impact. Over the years, Christ's naked, broken body have become more familiar to Zwana even than her own, for not only is it everywhere, but it is also lovingly, truthfully, anatomically depicted. She had recognized that from the very first days of her confinement, how the men who carved and sculpted the two most powerful crucifixes in Santa Caterina, the great wooden one that hangs above the altar and the stone statue on the wall at the end of the main cloisters, were as informed about the human body as any anatomist, which is only to be expected, since for many years now any painter or sculptor with blood in his veins had made it his business to find his way into charnel houses, or even those same lecture theatres that she had been denied in order to perfect his craft. In their hands, dead material became flesh. The very surface of the wood or stone appeared tender. You could see, feel, how the layers of skin were vulnerable to the sting and sear of the whip the way the thorns pierced and hooked into the thin flesh of the forehead, the bowing of the spine and shoulders under the burden of carrying the great cross, the force of blows that sent iron nails smashing through tendon and bone, the knotting and screaming of the sinews as they took the body's hanging weight, and how, once punctured, a man might bleed so copiously that unless staunched, life could seep out through a single vicious opening. Of course, not everyone feels or sees the same thing. This too was a revelation that came early to her. For some, usually those who came youngest or lived longest, the very habit of such images has made them familiar, ordinary even. Christ's death as a kind of furniture, glimpsed out of the corner of an eye when hurrying late for office or marking the usual route from one place to another. For others, it is a reason, some might say an excuse for decoration, the exquisite beauty of Suara Camilla's silver crucifix Christ or the ostentation of the abbess's jeweled one. Then there are a few, Suara Pervasarana is the most active, who in contrast find the experience of his suffering so constantly new and affecting that it makes them yearn to share his agony, or those so moved by his resignation and loneliness on the cross that they are in danger of being constantly overwhelmed by the pity of it all. Zwana, in contrast, has never felt any of these things. Her fault, for she understands that that is what it is, lies in a different direction, the need to heal him. So much is she her father's daughter, by the time she became old enough to understand the passion of Christ, her instinct had been to save rather than worship him. In the first weeks in the convent, when her future had felt like a life sentence, she had kept herself from despair during the endless hours in chapel by studying that great hanging body, detailing the ways in which, had she been called upon, she might have repaired the damage, which poultices and herbs she might have used to staunch the flow of blood, the salves with which would have treated the whiplash and cuts, the ointments she would have rubbed around the jagged flesh to avoid affection. Even most heretical of all, the draft she might have given him to blunt the pain. Had her father ever felt the same thing? She wonders sometimes what he would have made of this world she lives in. He had not been a total stranger to it, 
As a doctor at the university with connections to the court, he had been occasionally called upon to treat noble nuns if their condition was dangerous enough and the abbess sanctioned his visit. As it was, she had only heard one story that he talked about. The day he came back from a convent on the outskirts of the city where he had treated a nun who had done violence to herself, first beating her head against the wall until the blood ran, and then when they confined her to her cell, somehow getting hold of a kitchen knife with which she stabbed herself a dozen times before they prized the weapon away from her. When he arrived, she had been tied down and was delirious, the life dripping out of her through those dozen wounds onto the floor. So much blood had been lost that there was nothing he could do except offer something to deal with the pain. But the abbess had refused, convinced that the devil was inside her, and that if she was soothed by the potion, she might renew her attack. When I questioned them, they said no one had noticed anything amiss with her that morning, he said, shaking his head, though whether from disbelief or pity, he did not say. Suana thinks about it sometimes, that story. How could it be possible that something so powerful should erupt out of nothing? In her experience, a well-run convent is as alert to the distress of its sisters as it is to an excess of joy, since either can tilt the balance of calm living. And if it had been the work of the devil, and though she has come across mischief, even occasional malice, in this republic of women she has yet to make the devil's acquaintance, why had the abbess or the novice mistress seen no sign of it? So she gives thanks to God that when it came to the decision as to where she would spend the rest of her life, it had been Santa Caterina that had taken her in, welcoming her thin voice and her dowry chest as full of books as it was of prayers. It was a question for Hilary. Uh, you talked about there was a lot of mythologizing around Cromwell. Did you find that there were some stories that maybe you loved and then they just weren't based in fact? And did you have to give them up or did you weave them in anyway? Well, there are things that I would have loved to include if I could have thought of a way of doing it. Um, I, I um, it never struck me, you know, as, as a cradle Catholic. Um, I never actually had much to do with Fox's Book of Martyrs or acts and monuments, as it's more properly called, when I was growing up. I thought it would be a very grim tome. I didn't know it was so funny in parts. And Fox has these incredible anecdotes about Cromwell, at one point, turning up in Rome and making a jelly for the Pope. And it's not only a jelly, it's a musical jelly. Now, I'm not going to enlarge on that because I think you should read the story for yourself. You should all go home and Google Acts and Monuments and find this story because the prose is unbeatable. <laughs> and what do you do with material like this? I mean, it is glorious, but I could not think of any way of working it into my book and retaining my name as a serious novelist. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, what I had decided to do was allude to circumstances of Cromwell's early life. But it is beyond me. It is not what I would be able to do imaginatively to reconstruct his early life, his, his wanderings around Europe. I feel I haven't got the cultural background and I haven't got... 
I haven't got the place to stand there. And I decided to concentrate on the political Cromwell, the documented Cromwell, the later life, which means that, yes, unfortunately, some of these glorious stories have to go. Um, it's a question for both of you. It's about research. Um, research can go on forever. I'm thinking about historical mm. fiction and biography. Um, when do you actually stop researching? If you're writing, if you're sort of involved in writing the whole wonderful story and then you suddenly find a little bit more, some more nuggets of information, some more primary sources, do you actually change around what you've done? Or when do you stop researching? When do you say, I've done enough, this is it, I'm writing the story? Or do you carry on researching? Or do you both work differently in this? I stop when I've become so terrified that I'll never write, write the novel unless I, if I'd have read another book, actually. Um, and, and it's usually when I've got indigestion. What's happened is I've read so much now that I'm fearing that I'm getting lost. And then I will, by that stage, probably have, in this case, I had like seven notebooks full that I'd taken. And I will read them all through, and then I will put them away. Because if I'm always looking to go to the research, what I've discovered is the story doesn't fly. I then need to leave it alone, and I then have to risk that some things I will remember, other things I will forget, and some things I might not remember quite correctly. So at a certain point, I may, if I have any worry, have to go back. But then, of course, what sometimes happens to me, and maybe it happens to you too, Hilary, is as the story grows, and it partly does it is fed by the research. You know, by this time I do know a hell of a lot. So I will then chance upon something I don't yet know enough about. But I will now realize that I need it because it's important. So I will sometimes then break off and go. But by then I'm in a flow, so it's not so terrifying to come back. Well, I don't have a, a discrete period of research and a period of writing. Uh, I, um, it is a fact for me that if you gave me the telephone directory, I would start turning it into dialogue. So for, as soon as I'm in possession of any facts at all, I start making dozens of possible versions, some of which may have to go out of the window in the light of later discovered facts. So what I tend to do is I've got masses and masses of background, which I'm always working at and always adding to right through the project. I tend to cram my head with all the political facts and figures and sit down and write a section. But then as I'm writing, the need to know other things is triggered off. So you're looking at another period of, of research. I think for me the challenge is to keep, keep all these many, many files in play because it's research at different levels. You know, you've got this top surface layer of, of political facts and the great substratum of knowledge about how people actually lived and how they thought. And I have to remember to balance it and not get so enthralled with my card index of what happened day by day that I forget to go back and read those big background files because they then, they kind of come up from underneath and enrich the top surface action. I think my greatest challenge is just keeping tabs on people. I have, a, I have a card index that tells me where my major figures are, uh, you know, at one point and the next day, where are they the next day and where are they the next week. 
so that I can just make sure that, as I say, I am offering the reader a possible version so that I don't put someone in Whitehall when he's actually off in the country and so on. And that kind of thing, it may sound like pedantry, really, but it's essential to me. I couldn't do it in good heart unless I did that kind of thing. And um, it's what occupies a surprising amount of time and effort, actually. Could, could I just add one thing, which is that sometimes you miss whole bits of research completely. Um, when I was doing The Birth of Venus, uh, I, ha I handed in the first version of the book, and I can say this because my editor is here, and she very sweetly said to me, it, it's really, really interesting, Sarah, but can I ask you something? Did they eat at all during the Renaissance? <laughs> And I, who don't eat, that's the problem. You know, I'll carry on writing till I fall off. The store went, oh, no, yeah, they ate a lot, actually. And she'd go, it's just that the book takes six years and nobody has a meal. <laughs> <laughs> what I was trying to say was really trying to contrast the difference in the narrative voice that you had. And um, saying that, I mean, I think from part of what you were saying, you look at the telephone directory and immediately, ah, I can make something from this, that the sort of imaginative, speculative joy allows you to launch into sort of direct speech very happily, whereas I think Sarah Dunant's point of view, um, well, the, that's right, the point of view, what the historical research that he's done perhaps makes her rather more diffident from what we've seen and only we had only indirect speech and I'm interested to know not having read the rest of the novel whether the difference in approach when it came to research for both of you is actually in any way um, has sort of un underlain how you've actually approached the voice in the writing of the two novels thank you very much I think we we do something not dissimilar actually Hillary has passages of great beauty and description which will, will roll the narrative on. And I have quite, quite powerful passages, well, powerful, I have quite long passages where the story is run by dialogue. So I mean, maybe, maybe the other interesting question is here is how, how does one construct how people are speaking 500 years ago? You know, what, what do we do with that moment when how did it sound? Because of course, if we made it sound as it actually sounded, it would be virtually incomprehensible for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a huge problem about language, and it's it's the first thing that strikes you, I think, with when you go into historical fiction. I was so avid myself when I began Wolf Hall to know how the book would sound, um, and and that was how I began it. I I sat down experimentally just to say to myself, let me see how it sounds. And the first scene in the book is its actually a scene in which the 15-year-old Cromwell is, is beaten up by his father and decides that he's had enough of this and he's going to get on the road. And when I gave it... Oh, when I, I wrote this scene and I thought, yes, yes, this is it. And for the first time in my life, I wanted to walk around with my first page, saying, would you like to see my first page? And when I gave it to my husband, he said, they sound as if they live in a tower block in a really rough estate. And I said, yes, because that's where the Cromwells are. They are the 16th century equivalent, you see. And... Um, Having hit that note, I never had to let it go again. And that was the magic 
that, that little piece of magic I was given at the start of this book, and afterwards it turns into hard slog. But what I like to do is try, if I can, to give some flavour of the rhythm of contemporary speech. So my book isn't by any means written in standard modern English. Um, it is subtly pushed sideways to pick up on a slightly different rhythm and the use of the occasional odd word. Mm. But I don't want the language to attract attention to itself so that it gets in the way of, for the reader. And I don't want, as it were, to have to footnote it. My view of Sir Thomas More was dictated by the presentation of um, him in Robert Bolt's play. Yes. And um, you've taken on an enormous responsibility in completely destroying that view of the Saint <laughs> Thomas More, which I think is absolutely, you know, it rings so true. But it is a huge responsibility, and I, what seems it to me, I just wondered if it felt like that to you. Well, Robert Bolt's play is, of course, wonderful drama, and it made a beautiful film, and that's why it's made such a lasting impact, far more than any biography of Moore. If you looked into the biographies, even his firmest friends would admit that there was a very, that there was an underside to his character. Um, Bolt and I are doing two different things because he has to condense his portrayal much more than I have to. I am seeking to give a dramatic presentation, but I have more room for manoeuvre, and I have more, I have the leisure to explain, not, I mean, in a heavy-handed narrative way, but I compose several different viewpoints, whereas in the theatre, you have to go straight there, make your mind up on what your viewpoint is and go straight for it. And Robert Bolt, very strangely, decided that Thomas More was a 1960s liberal. <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. He was more like a man who would be intellectually and spiritually at home with the Taliban. And I agree it's an awesome responsibility. There were times when reading, reading Robert Bolt's play, which I did many years ago, but not when I was writing myself, I even felt sorry for Richard Rich. He's so traduced by Robert Bolt. And, of course, I don't understand why he made the choices he did, because he could have made more authentic, authentic ones, and they would have made equally good drama. So, yes, I am taking an awesome responsibility, but I am secure in my presentation. <laughs> Thank you. I was struck by Hillary's phrase, the need for imagination on an, an industrial scale. Yes. And it's a question to both yourself and to Sarah. Fundamentally, you're telling a story. Mm. And are there ever any points in developing that story where you feel and you encounter tensions between wanting to tell a good story and staying within the facts of what you know. And if you do encounter those tensions, how do you deal with them? Um, well, it'll be a different answer for me to Hillary because, because my characters are composites, so I'm constructing their lives. 
But I think what I've discovered is that if you do your research well enough and deep enough, that the facts help you write the story. For instance, in that piece that I read you, there was a rather shocking description of a nun doing damage to herself in a convent, right? Now, that incident actually took place, and it comes from an extract in Dava Sopel's translations of Galileo's daughter's uh, letters to her father, because she was a nun, right? Now, actually, the whole book is full of rather boring things about uh, the wheat yield and could her father send her back the basket, which she would then send to give plums or whatever. But in the middle of this, there's this one story. Sorry I haven't written, Father. This is what just happened. Um, so that's the equivalent of my gold nugget from that one book. There it is. And so I place it at the story at a moment when, when it, that is exactly what's needed. But it's, uh, the only way I can describe it is it's a, bit like being, it's a bit like being one of those pointillist painters, actually, whereas I have a whole series of details. Um, and I put them on the canvas like tiny little dots. And it's not until you start to step back that you get any sense of depth from them. Individually, they're just tiny facts. But when you actually move back to them, they give you depth. Um, and I find that the story grows from the knowledge that I have. For instance, there's a plot point in this novel about the use of cochineal. Now, cochineal is a dye that was discovered in Mexico when uh, the Mexicans were first conquered by the Spanish, but they didn't know what to do with it because it wasn't gold. So they didn't do anything with it until they'd run out of gold, and then in the 1560s, they start to realize that they've got red gold on their hands because it's the best red dye you've ever discovered, and they run a monopoly trade for it. Now, I read a book on the trade in cochineal as part of my general research, and I come to a point in the story where I need something which involves something that looks like blood. There it is. It's, it's there for me in that kind of subconscious memory that I've got. So I think probably I'm working differently to Hillary because I'm porous of a lot of stuff which then I sort of vomit out on the story I'm making up. Well, There's oh, vomit in the book, red vomit, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I think I think we partly agree, actually. I think facts can be awkward, they can feel unwieldy, but facts, for me, are the basic material. And they are the... It's the facts that offer the opportunities. When you happen to hit the right little fact. I mean, for instance, I read your passage about Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More. We know a good deal about their relationship and about their dealings with each other in the 20s and in the 1520s, early 1530s. What we don't know is when they met. And I have done a novelish thing here. Um, and I, I suppose it might stand as an illustration of how I work. When Thomas, Cromwell, uh, when Thomas More was 14 years old, he was a young gentleman, a page, in the house of Cardinal Morton um, at Lambeth Palace. And at the same time, Thomas Cromwell was seven years old, about, because we don't know his date of birth, and his uncle John was a cook down in the kitchens at Lambeth Palace. So can you imagine how I felt when <laughs> that fact came into my possession, or rather those two facts were put together? Because what does a boy in a chaotic 
family like the Cromwells do. Um, he needs to get fed. He needs to... Um, he, if he's got an uncle who's a cook, that's where you're going to find him. And so I made them meet. When Moore is 14 and Cromwell is 7, and Cromwell remembers the meeting all his life with a sense of possibility, lost possibility. But at the end of the book, you find out that Thomas More has no idea that he ever set eyes on him in those days. And it's, it's a very poignant moment. When I wrote my book about the French Revolution, um, which is actually the first book I wrote, it's basically about three heroes of the revolution, none of whom were present at the fall of the Bastille. And my agent, who isn't here tonight, so I can speak freely, said, couldn't you put one of them there? I, I was so ashamed. Sarah, I almost vomited. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the blood for you, Hilary. <laughs> um, it, it, because it would be against all my instincts. And what I feel is, you take one little brick out of that great big edifice of fact, and the whole thing comes tumbling down, and you end up with a historical farce, like um, the Tudors TV series. I'm, I'm actually watching the third series at the moment, which will be coming here in the autumn, and I'm thinking... I bet you're sorry now that you did, you forgot to include the Duke of Norfolk. And <laughs> I notice, you know, as they've tweaked one little fact, the fact the terrible cascade of consequences it's brought in its train, so I wouldn't expose myself to that. Um, do you see yourselves in terms of the sort of tradition of historical, writing historical fiction? I mean, going back to Sir Walter Scott and... Um, you know, there's a whole tradition of the genre. And also, in, in terms of some of your contemporaries, like C.J. Sampson and um, mm. some of the more popular, best-selling writers, I'd like to see, you know, can you kind of um, talk about your relationship, your feelings about them? Uh, yeah, yes, I think that was a difficult question to hear, actually, because I don't think the mic was on. It was about our relationship to other historical writers, both in the past, people like Scott, and people writing now. Um, I don't have a lot to say because when I'm writing, I don't read anybody else. I, I, you know, when I'm actually writing, I'm like a sponge, and I can so easily become a ventriloquist and pick up other people's voices that I'm very, very careful not to read anybody else. Um, so I haven't read Samson yet. I'm going to take one of the books on holiday with me and have a look at it. Um, so I'm afraid I'm not going to be any help on that one. Hilary, maybe. Well, I think you are aware of the tradition, but I also think it is true. It's a, a real central thing about being a writer is that every day is new, and you're only as good as your last sentence. So every day it's a question of... How much further forward can I get? I could do it yesterday, but can I still do it today? So I think, in a sense, you're very concerned with your own tradition when yeah. it comes down to getting words on paper. I, I suppose I don't think about it very much. Some, I think the words, the grand narrative came up from Joanne as well, and I think 
I don't actually see myself as a purveyor of the grand narrative. In this book, I'm, I'm writing from the viewpoint of someone who has gate-crashed the grand narrative and who should never have been part of it in the first place. And I think that seductive as history from below may be, we have to be aware that it's only partly retrievable. I mean, Sarah, for instance, is writing with great energy and conviction about the lives of women, but she's actually writing about the lives of aristocratic women. The experience of the women on the layer below, the women who would have been the menial servants to these lasses in the convent, I guess is irretrievable. So I think that I think the modern writer has to think not the modern writer of historical fiction has to think not only where do I fit in the tradition, but basically what kind of a political animal am I as well? I think you have to be able to take up a quite sophisticated positioning and operate historiographically not just historically, mm. and know how you are situated with reference to the historical tradition as much as the literary tradition. That said, it's certainly not a thing that preoccupies you when you actually sit down at the blank screen. I, I would certainly agree with that, actually. I think that one of the things that I've been thinking about very deeply over these three books is the relationship between sexuality and women. Um, and although at no level do I see writing historical fiction as a method of commentating on the present, I think anyone is foolish if that's what they're attempting to do, for exactly the reasons I argued earlier, that there is profound difference. There is no doubt that I keep running up against the ways in which religion is terrified of sexuality. And the ways in which religion has seeked throughout the ages and does now in terms of the rebirth of religion to want to control sexuality. And the unfortunate way in which when it comes to control sexuality, it chooses to start controlling the women rather than the men. And that seems to me to be a profoundly problematic thing both in history and now. And it's very interesting, therefore, for me to trace back the notion to a character of Eve who once handed an apple to the guy who could have said, thanks, Eve, but no. <laughs> and because he didn't, she becomes a statement of temptation, which then allows such repression and oppression of her because she is the problem. The fact that he can't keep it in his trousers is her problem. And that's a, a, a very crude but powerful way of saying that, I think, runs through all history. And that's one of the things that I've become incredibly fascinated about, writing about the past. As an artist, I'm very interested in your references uh, to art. And, uh, and I'm looking at you as extraordinarily um, unattainable and incredible creatures because the idea of a um, uh, for example history painting now is an utterly impossible s subject I mean it could never be done when we go and look at a Poussin or a Jericho it really isn't and uh, now and it can 
it never be now. Whereas what you're doing is almost the opposite of what we are uh, uh, doing in that um, there's almost a dialectical process. We can't uh, do the history painting which you are writing. And uh, when I just wanted to say, I think it's, it's very interesting that you're always preferring to uh, paintings, mm -hmm. for yes, example. Yes. And it's a gone and done and over well, I thing, but so interesting I suspect in both well. of our cases, we're using art a great deal within our research. Yeah. Certainly, I know yes. I am. The, you know, this is a very obvious fact, number 322. You know, before the camera, before the movie camera, where do we go to get our visual representations of what the past was like? And certainly for me, it's an absolutely key moment, the Renaissance, because those become flesh and blood. They become recognizable. And a tradition grows up where they actually, you know, there is a room in the academy in Venice, which has history paintings from wall to ceiling. One is by Carpaccio in the life of St. <laughs> Ursula, and the others are by Bellini. I could spend five days in that room doing research in order to find words to construct what those images are telling me about Venice in the 1530s or the 1520s. So art is utterly vital to me in terms of research. Yes, yes. Holbein is, is a character in, in Wolf Hall and will be a character in the next book. Uh, Thomas Cromwell, unlike most of um, Henry's courtiers, had spent a lot of time in Italy and he brought back an Italian eye, which made his perception of things rather different from the norm. And um, I do spend a lot of time trying to think behind the image and to think what is the agenda of the image which, a question which will become painfully acute in the next novel, when Hans Holbein brings home his painting of Anne of Cleves, <laughs> who is found not to measure up to it. Um, I find it very interesting that you're both writing novels about the 16th century. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned, this is also a period which CJ Sansom is looking at, and the TV series The Tudors. Um, so maybe this is a question for all three of you, is actually, um, what is it about the 16th century that has attracted us, the public interest in this way that so many writers are, are writing about it? And uh, what makes it a, a particular um, goldmine for historical fiction? I think, um, you know, to, to be very brief about that, um, we've all been aware of the enormous interest aroused by the 500th anniversary of Henry VIII's accession. Um, we have always been preoccupied with this reign because obviously the great archetypes are marching through it. It's all about sex and death, and this is our national myth. Um, I am, I would say, I always thought of myself as an 18th century person. This has turned around. I now almost literally cannot see the 18th century. I can only, um, I, I have medievalized my eye thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it might be just as well to say briefly, what led me to this book was not the century or the, the time, <laughs> it was the character. Um, He's my sort of guy. I would have gone for Thomas Cromwell wherever I found him, <laughs> oh, in whichever century. 
I'm going to be completely heretical here, uh, with the exception of Hillary's book, which I adore, and she knows that I do. I am really not very interested in the Tudors anymore. <laughs> I've, you know, I've, I've kind of had enough of our glorification of our great moment, because when I look at the map of history during that time, I think what is going on throughout Europe is infinitely more interesting in many ways. And so I've chosen to place myself in the Renaissance because I said, as I said right at the beginning, I really do genuinely think it, it was the cultural revolution of the West. And to understand it more I, has been both my pleasure and my work. And I did a lot of Tudor history at school, and enough already. And I mean, my answer is, is not at all helpful because I'm a modernist. <laughs> um, I really love historical novels of the 19th and 20th century. Um, I think really, I mean, these two novels are amazing and completely entrancing, not, I think, because of the period in which they, they, they were situated. They are just two of our best novelists, um, and they are just great reads. Um, so that, that's so I, I, 16th century, that does nothing for me, really. <laughs> these books do, these novels do, and that, that is what makes a, a, a you know, brilliant uh, historical, historical novels, historical fiction. But I'm afraid we have come to the end, not, of course, of the evening, but of this part of the evening. There are still drinks here, there are books to buy and to get signed, um, and, of course, there are really interesting people in this room to talk to. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.